So I thought, okay, that's what I can do. I work in the elements of space and time. That's what I do as a、mm. choreographer. I can create an invitation for people to make space and make time to sit down or stand up or march or do whatever they want to do with climate crisis at the forefront of the conversation. Not something we're skirting around, not something we're ducking, not something that we're just. Complaining about and crying about, you know, while we have our latte. Like, it's really something that I wanted people to feel permission to feel. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get stuff. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and thanks for tuning in to episode number 70.、Uh, today, the guest is Kristen Kusanovic,、uh, and you are going to love this conversation. I'm so excited to share.、Uh, Kristen is a senior lecturer in the theater and dance and also the child studies department at Santa Clara. She's produced, choreographed, and directed over 100 different works in dance, drama, musical theater, opera, film, and video, and she also Works a lot in、uh, arts education. She's the president of the California Dance Education Association,、uh, and she got her、uh, undergrad degree from Santa Clara before working in Minneapolis and then returning about、uh, 20 years ago in the theater and dance department. One reason why I'm having Kristen on the show is because she founded a new project this year called Turn,、uh, which is a week of events around the climate crisis. There was one week this past fall, and there will be another coming up in the spring. I attended several of the Turn Week events, and they were really eye opening and brought together people from a wide range of、uh, different departments and different student groups. And there were some really creative events that gave me new ideas and helped. Helped me see things in, in new ways. So、um, I asked Kristen about her, her upbringing in, in theater and dance,、uh, how she became passionate about those areas, what the arts have to do with、uh, climate change. We talk about、uh, the use of the word climate crisis, which、uh, the turn events were intentional to use instead of climate change and why that matters, what the, what the difference is there. Kristen also has some of the best advice I've ever heard about having your social life flow out of your passions and interests. And this, this conversation was just fantastic. We talked for about 40 minutes, but I could have easily spent another couple hours, and I think you're going to love it. So please enjoy this conversation with Kristen Kasanovich. Uh, Kristen Kusanovich, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. I'd love to start out and kind of ask how you found this,、uh, this career in the, the theater and dance space and、um, maybe any important moments along that journey. And then, yeah, to, to kind of transition that into how, like, how in the world does that connect with,、uh, with the environment or with climate change?、Um, So that, that's a big question, but yeah. <laughs> sure, that's a great question.、Um, the, the 
theater and dance career kind of found me. Um, I think it's something that I felt from a very young age. Uh, the desire to express things through movement was my first impulse. And my parents honored that by putting me in a dance school. They just happened to put me in a dance school for children that was all modern and creative dance. So unlike all my other friends who were in competitive dance and um, kind of pushed to perform other people's work from an early age, I was in a school that taught you to choreograph your own ideas into movement mm -hmm. from a very early age. So I had a repertoire starting at the age of seven, a very short dances that I thought expressed really important universal themes. <laughs> um, and I got um, a lot of critique for my work through the years and a lot of support um, and was taught by teachers who were um, exceptionally strong pedagogists and child development specialists. So I did not come out of my dance training with some of the um, anxieties that other dancers come mm. out of it with. I didn't have a bad image of my body. I didn't hate um, the voices in my head telling mm. me how bad I was doing. I really had a very positive experience, um, a, a really deeply artistic experience. And then I came to Santa Clara as an undergraduate to mm. study. Uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to study, but I had a scholarship to the theater and dance department and was very excited about that. And I also had a real intense interest in mathematics. So for a while, I rode um, both of those trains and mm -hmm. took the double major. And then towards the third year I was here, I took a dance workshop with the Bella Lewitsky Dance Company in Idlewild, California, up in the mountains, in the forest, basically, and realized that that was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I dropped my math major down to a minor. Mm -hmm. And then graduated and uh, went to NYU for Tisch School of the Arts to get a really uh, intensive conservatory-like training mm -hmm. to kind of add on to the broad liberal arts, Jesuit, social justice right. uh, education I had had. What was it about that workshop that led to you saying, like, this is what I want to do with my life? <laughs> well, it was a phenomenally um, charged atmosphere with some of the best artists in the in the West Coast modern dance movement. And the teacher, Bella Lewitsky, at the time was 72 years old mm. and doing 60 Pilates abdominal sit-ups a day, plus a very strenuous modern dance workout. And I just thought, wow, I'd like to be the, like her someday and I'd like to, mm. you know, sustain myself. Um, she was one of the first vegetarians I ever met. You know, this mm. was 30 years ago. So <laughs> it was pretty, um, it was a lot of new information. I also went to that workshop very sick. I had gotten mono in my junior year here from being overextended, I think, being in a lot of shows and being in a lot of honors classes and Maybe you've experienced this mm -hmm. uh, tension of having a lot of good things to do. Um, and I went there sick and the doctor said, don't dance. And my parents said, don't dance, just watch. And I said, OK, I'll sit and watch. And I ended up dancing 12 hours a day. And when I came back home, um, all evidence of that was gone. Wow. So I thought that was a sign. And it was the doctor thought it was a miracle. And uh, I thought it was somewhat of a miracle, too. And so I thought, well, that's really I've been looking for um, something to confirm the the rightness of this path when most of society is saying, you know, oh, you'll never make a living. You can't do that. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. You're so smart. You should be a doctor. You should be a lawyer. And 
it's like, yeah, I, I think I'm smart and I think I'll be a dancer. So um, mm. that was that was very formative. Mm. And was um, that scary to think like like this to, or just to have the, the instability of dance as as a career? Or did you just you know what's funny ahead? about that <laughs> is, I mean, I, I don't come from a family with a lot of means. They I worked my whole way through college. I lived at home. My parents worked super hard for us, um, me and my two sisters. But I was given total permission from my parents to experiment in this way and to kind of figure out my life without any um, career fair or assistance, without any structure given to me. Um, we were just raised to make our own friends, not count on a structure for friendship, um, forge our own path, not count on someone figuring it out for us. <laughs> and I also feel this great solidity in the arts I feel a lot of freedom in the arts. And to me, that's the most solid thing I think a person could feel. Mm -hmm. um, in other fields, I felt there were some con confining elements, um, wh whether it's just the image of sitting in a cubicle all day or working for a company you don't believe in um, or doing things that don't let you express some of your deepest uh your soul in any way. Mm -hmm. um, I just found that would be precarious mm -hmm. for me. Those thoughts were more precarious than the solidity that I felt in the midst of a creative process, even mm -hmm. though a creative process is completely filled with unknowns and um, doubt and challenges. Um, it's one of the hardest things I feel like a person can do. Mm -hmm. um, is to create a work of art. And um, so it's a very hard profession, very hard on the body, but but good overall for um, sustaining like a wholeness, I think, because mm -hmm. you use your mind fully, you use your spirit, your, your emotions, your psyche, your body. Um, it's all kind of one big thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's been great. I'm hoping to, you know, be dancing into my 80s, 90s, um, you know, knock on wood, but I want to be just like Bella mm -hmm. and um, other people who've learned how to do this in a sustainable fashion. So I think the first, my first experience with sustainability is that I was in a profession where people were burning out and getting injured and not liking themselves and mm -hmm. doing self-harm mm -hmm. and having unhealthy habits. And I was doing it sustainably. And that was my first experience with the contrast between non-sustainable living and sustainable living was mm -hmm. the way I saw such a diversity of personalities in the arts and such a diversity of um, wholeness and uh, maybe a bit of a lack of wholeness in, in some of my um, dear friends in the arts. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's so fascinating. And we'll get into more into sustainability later. But it's it's really interesting to think that maybe the first step is yourself being sustainable, right? And, and not even just in your not even just in your consumption or what you're what you're like purchasing or, or eating or any of it, but just in like how you view yourself and how you, and that like mental space as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. People who started the green schools, which are a very holistic enterprise for children and the school buildings are built out of local natural materials. There's no mm -hmm. cement, there's no uh, toxic chemicals that they're breathing. There's no paint. Um, the green school uh, movement around the globe is, believes that the, if a child is raised in a very holistic fashion, mm -hmm. then they'll have within them the imagination to imagine that the world 
should be that whole Mm -hmm. and that they deserve a world that is that whole. And therefore, they'll be charged up and ready to fight for a world that is whole. Mm -hmm. But if they haven't been, if all their needs haven't been met, if their emotional needs, psychological, social, spiritual needs have not been met or their physical needs um, for love and for shelter and all those things that everyone, every child needs, then they might not have the resiliency completely there at every moment there's a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they may not have an image that the world could be whole or um, a little bit healthier than it is. So this was an interesting thing to me to encounter as an adult, seeing really brilliant child educators and realizing that my dance teacher was like that. Mm. And she wanted to ensure that we all loved movement mm-hmm. that we all love dance that dance kind of was a form of love mm-hmm. not anything else really mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, you know it's super technical it's very hard it's there's all kinds of structure there's all kinds of methods there's theory there's history to dance but um it's motivated from something very selfless actually mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So then, then back to your your story. You were going to to graduate school and thinking about connecting these two worlds of theater and dance with sustainability. Well, you know, I didn't think about that in graduate school. Mm. Um, I don't think a lot of people from my uh, decade of college were thinking about sustainability. We had these recycling lectures and we had like people come into our high schools and tell us about, you know, we're running out of trees and like we believed that. And so then we save paper, you know, we did those mm-hmm. kinds of things. We, we were definitely the victims of the propaganda um, that is now coming out in all the legislation mm-hmm. to save the world. Uh, we were victims of the propaganda that maybe fossil fuels weren't so bad. And, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things that were um, kind of winning in the discourse um, even though we had those little lectures on recycling and trees and we all felt bad when we you know, heard that maybe there was a species that had gone extinct. It just seemed it seemed like a faraway situation. And it seemed like I'm mean, growing up in San Jose. Um, it seemed like this was a long term problem. And little by little, you would just plant some more trees and use less paper and not not use plastic bags and everything would be fine. You know, that was kind of the level that we were at. So your generation has a completely different understanding. Um, and I think mine now too understands how sophisticated and how deep the problem is and how almost everything we bought, used, or did had um, some unseen costs mm-hmm. to the planet. But I went to grad school and then decided to open my own dance company. Mm-hmm. And I studied um which cities in the United States had the best arts audiences, like which cities had the most arts education in their schools. Because I figured if, if people have had the arts, they might be more open to this very experimental work that I was doing on the mm-hmm. sort of contemporary edge of dance, uh, modern dance. And so I found Minneapolis mm-hmm. and just kind of, you know, put my finger on the map and um, took a train there and met one person that I knew who lived there. And he and his fiance had a little extra room in their house. So I just rented this little attic and I lived there for 10 years and had a dance company for 10 years. Um, and then I received notice that Santa Clara university had a position open in the theater and dance department for one year to cover someone who was taking a leave. And I applied for that and it was a national search and I, um, was awarded that opportunity 
And then after doing the job for a year, the dance department expanded a little bit and created another position, which I took for another year. Mm. And then I was on a lecturer's um, life of one-year contract, mm. three-year contract, one-year contract. And then I um, went up for a promotion in the lecturer ranks to senior lecturer in mm. 2007. I've been a senior lecturer since then. So now this is my 20th year teaching full-time wow. in the theater and dance department. Um, in the meantime, I had done a lot of professional theater outside and done choreography work with a bunch of different directors in New York, Denver, Minneapolis, and California. So my theater side, my theater skills were also getting honed during the time that I had my dance company. And I met my husband in Minneapolis. We started an underground experimental theater company hmm. called Theater of Happiness. Hmm. And we did mostly tragedies and Greek <laughs> Greek plays. And, Wait a minute. Why? I know. <laughs> and you'd kind of have to be in Minneapolis to get the joke, I guess. But it was really um, a fun endeavor to have two small companies running. Hmm. Um, we banned the critics from our shows. Hmm. That was our famous um, little moment. We just, we told everyone in the press, we didn't want anyone to come see our theater. And then, hmm. so all these critics came hmm. and watched it. And it was really a lot of fun. Um then when I got here, I was able to use my skills in producing dance and also producing theater mm -hmm. to help the department's productions, um, to assist directors here, to choreograph for shows with some of our amazing faculty on the theater side, and then to create dances with students in our dance side. Yeah. So, and then this year was the first year of, uh, of turn week. Yeah. So what... What changed? What was the impetus for starting this this movement after you've you've been at, at Santa Clara for for so many years, both as a, a student and in a faculty position? So, well, yeah, such a great question because I'm not an expert in uh, environmental science, right? Um, but I've I'm schooled here as an undergrad, and then I've been schooled here as a faculty member, and the the development that happens here if you take advantage of the amazing centers and offerings here, it's quite extraordinary over the years of your career. So I guess the, the the summary background is I went to so many great talks at um, Miller Center. Before that, it was called STS, mm -hmm. the Ignatian Center, um, Markula, and didn't just go to talks, but I was really involved with these places. I was on panels and um, in think tanks. Um, I worked with the School of Engineering for a while on an interdisciplinary aesthetics group. Um, I ended up being asked by the some people in the business school to co-teach and lead um, leadership development teams for students there, which I currently do. I was a part of the Ignatian faculty mm -hmm. forum. I did things in residence life. I lived on campus for a few years. Um, and it just felt like I had collaborated across like maybe 20 different departments and seven or eight different centers and units. So I already had a lot of relationships established and I already was thinking in a very interdisciplinary way. Mm. My research for the last 10 years has been transdisciplinary research in educational leadership, personnel management, and the arts. And so I've been putting together some really disparate fields mm. and using theater and plays to train future leaders in schools mm. Um, and kind of substituting the Harvard case study method with a different method that mm. me and my colleague piloted and invented and researched, mm. um, which is to use plays instead of case studies and train mm. people in theater techniques to learn how to gain empathy and play roles in their future business context that mm. they'll be in. Um, so I had done a lot of work with like 
listening deeply to people from other fields. Right, right. When the news showed up, the news of what's going on in our planet, um, I'm because I'm not in environmental studies, I've I've, I've talked to my friends in environmental studies and they were all talking to me about how terrible things were looking. (laughs) And I knew how bad it was from their expertise. They were letting me know these things, but I wasn't feeling that this was in the general public's discourse, this real serious gravity. Hmm. And then I was reading the U.S. Geological Survey and seeing how the waterline was going to rise around the bay and how San Francisco Airport was going to be underwater in like 50, 60 years. And I thought... Wouldn't this be something people would be talking about? What's going on here? And then, you know, enter the children's youth climate strikes and Greta Thunberg and all the indigenous children around the world and all the other children around the world kind of rising up in the last two years. The the school strikes really, really touched me because I'm in child studies as well as theater and dance. And I work a lot with that incredible program and think a lot about the world from the perspective of children. So there were these wonderful opportunities for learning from people that are very young. Mm -hmm. And I listened to her speeches and it really struck me that um, we needed to do more and I needed to do more. And I wasn't sure what that was. And then I went to a physics lecture. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, you know, you just take advantage of what's on campus. And I went to a lecture by an astrophysicist named Jeffrey Bennett that was held last fall in 2018 Um, sponsored by the physics department, and it was on demystifying global warming. Mm. Um, And when I got the physics side of it down, and then I had the, what was happening to children, the trauma and the stress that we've put children under, that together was enough to just ignite me and say, okay, I need to reprioritize what I'm using my time doing. Mm. And then I asked a bunch of students all through last winter and spring, what do you think of the climate crisis? And they would say, oh, it's terrible. I know, it's, isn't it awful? And But I can't talk about it right now. And I asked my colleagues, like, oh, yeah, you guys, can you believe all these species that are going extinct and the incredible, terrible predictions of this temperature rise and what 1.5 Celsius temperature rise means? Like, isn't that terrible? Oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I've got a lot of other stuff on my plate and a lot of issues and a lot of stuff at home and family and like, yeah, okay. So I felt like everybody underneath, like in this subterranean level, knew there was this disaster we needed to talk about, but no one felt they had the permission, the space or the time. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, that's what I can do. I work in the elements of space and time. That's what I do as Mm -hmm. a choreographer. I can create an invitation for people to make space and make time to sit down or stand up or march or do whatever they want to do with climate crisis at the forefront of the conversation, not something we're skirting around, not something we're ducking, not something that we're just complaining about Mm -hmm. and crying about, you know, while we have our latte. Like it's really something that I wanted people to feel permission to feel Hmm. the emotional import the range the dynamic range of the stages of grief that we're all going through starting with denial and moving through apathy Mm -hmm. and anger frustration to finally through several more stages to acceptance and i felt like oh i'm at acceptance 
I get that this is happening. I believe it's happening. It's a situation and needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But I was running into a lot of people that were in all the different stages, mm -hmm. partly because of not knowing the details mm -hmm. and partly because of being in denial for, for like denial is a great place to stay. <laughs> you know, just the first stage of grief. Just right. stay there. You, you never have to come out of denial. And there's plenty of people to support that for you if you're in denial about climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, okay, what if the university could stop everything it was doing and just talk about the climate crisis for a week? That to me would be fair mm -hmm. for our students to graduate here not knowing about the climate crisis seemed kind of unconscionable. Like, why would we do that to students? Why would we let them graduate here thinking the world is going to operate the same way it did 50 years ago mm -hmm. or for us? When we got out of here, mm -hmm. that would be just dishonest. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what propelled me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and you were intentional about using the word uh, climate crisis as opposed to climate change. So I, I get the how that's that's urgent. But maybe could you touch on how the use of the word crisis ties into uh, ties into emotions and what the proper um, or acceptable emotional response to all of this is, right? Because I think, you know, many people are in different stages, but it's tough to stay motivated to take action when such a such a vast problem is just in front of us, right? Yeah. So how, how does the, the use of that word kind of impact emotions? Well, um, I was noticing that I wasn't getting properly motivated by the language of sustainability. Mm -hmm. Because it implies there's a long time to get this right. And I was seeing, even though maybe it, the people running everything in sustainability don't think there's a long time, they were using a kind of a gentle language. And that seemed to me to be very intentional. They don't want to alarm undergraduates who are so busy and doing so many other things. and They don't want to scare people into... Um, depression or something like that. And I really understand and respect that. But I thought, you know, what I can do as a theater artist is I can bring the drama of the situation forward because I think it's a tragedy. Mm. And I think it's very dramatic what's happening. And I think it's the worst problem we've ever had as a as humanity. And it's a shared common problem that goes beyond every single distinction and determination of difference that we might have. Um, and some people are already right in the midst of crisis and suffering greatly and dying from it. And others haven't felt it yet, but it's coming for, for everybody. So I felt it was really important to not say a week of climate change. I felt it was important to put the word crisis there and use that at every turn so that people will normalize the use of the word and not get stuck in a stress only reaction. I'm okay if people are a little stressed, but they should also feel very empowered. I believe in that you can be stressed and empowered. I don't see those as exclusionary to each other. And I think that's from being a dancer. You stress or an athlete, you stress a muscle to build its power. Hmm. So I felt like we need to stress ourselves out a little more. We need to look at some of these really scary facts in the face and not turn away. Mm -hmm. And my hope was that it was not going to produce more anxiety, mm -hmm. although it's necessary to get um, alarmed. It's necessary to be alarmed. 
if you're not alarmed, then you probably don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of other people before me have said that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hoping, and I have, I don't know how to prove this, but I'm hoping that it's probably more anxiety producing for people your age to not talk about something that you know is happening and no one is talking about, especially adults like me, than to just get it out. Hmm. And I believe in if something, if there's some truth happening that you need to express it, you need to let that truth out. And that's partly the dance training, which mm-hmm. gives you the opportunity to actually express all your feelings, all your attitudes about the world through movement. And mm-hmm. so I felt like, well, everybody needs that opportunity, deserves it. And I want to give that opportunity. So yeah. maybe they don't, maybe they're too afraid to speak. So I'll create a bunch of events people can just go to mm-hmm. and they're going to be interdisciplinary. So someone from business, someone from law, someone from engineering, someone from the arts, someone from ethics, they will find something. Mm-hmm. that's up their alley and there'll be a Jesuit um, presence in that with Laudato Si kind of being the centerpiece of the week. Literally, it was 12 hours on a Wednesday of a five-day event to read Laudato Si under a tree and with a launching point being the indigenous perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, starting with Indigenous Peoples Day, we did not program any other turn events about climate crisis except uh, we wanted to focus all the energy on what indigenous leaders can teach us and if we simply listen and heed all of their advice because they do have all the solutions to climate change. They do have um, sustainable practices mm-hmm. and they're not waiting for a techno solution mm-hmm. that doesn't exist Um I was thinking that too much faith in technology to solve this problem lets us sit back yet again and do nothing mm-hmm. as we sort of fawn over the possibility of a technological advance that will solve all of this and you know, suck carbon like a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. um, out of the atmosphere. So I think activating people and making people feel like, yeah, you can do something, you should do something, and we've got to get Um, to the point where we're turning down that curve and we have to make that rising arrow of the temperature just turn back down. So we need to basically make a Mm U-turn. And that's where the name came from. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm really curious about kind of the link between like like education and and taking action so obviously a lot of the the turn week events were more education focused right and if you think about for example like a business reducing their carbon footprint that's very action oriented right but so i'm curious about that but also how it ties into art and and dance because uh dancing about climate change doesn't directly reduce the 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 carbon in in the atmosphere right but so how, how do you think about the importance of of art in the sustainability movement and kind of how, yeah, how like education and action all work together. I mean, I think it's really mysterious. I don't think there's a one-to-one correspondence. Like you go to a theater show about a certain subject of oppression against women, and then you go out the next day and start ending oppression against women. I don't think theater or art works that way. I think it works in a much more subtle way and a cumulative way. So I think a lifetime of seeing amazing plays, a lifetime of seeing paintings and listening to music um, and talking to artists and watching incredible films. I think all of that and making dances, uh, all of that accumulates to build your courage. And 
it accumulates to build your um, intellectual depth. So you bring that forward to your art, of course, and you do art about subjects. But um, one of my um, growth areas at Santa Clara has been moving from the idea that art will solve social justice problems by being about social justice to a newer view for me, which is art should be about social justice at times, but there are many other things art can be about. And we also need to have as citizens, all the civic engagement skills that have nothing to do with being an artist. We need to know how legislation works. We need to understand litigation in this case much of the environment is working through the courts uh, we need to understand a lot of different fields and we need to know how to demonstrate we know we need to know how to peacefully protest and all these skills i think require courage mm-hmm. and they require organizing and they require an incredible um, sense of a production and all those things come from being in the performing arts so i think i'm using a big skill set that i've developed in the arts for something outside of the arts that goes beyond the arts. But I think the arts are a really great vehicle for the message Mm -hmm. that's very hard for people to take in because it's so tragic. Mm -hmm. And so there are beautiful works of art um, that are compelling and truth-telling and they're helping us see how bad things are. Mm -hmm. They're helping us feel what we're not given a lot of social permission to feel. Regarding spring turn, which is going to be the second one, the focus in the spring is going to be a little bit different than it was in the fall. Students are finding their way to turn. Student imagination has been kind of lit up by this. Mm -hmm. And that was a great hope of mine, that students will now initiate their own turn events. And it's a distributed cognition model, so I'm not in charge of all these things that happen. I just set a date, a time I help people get space. I do some graphic design. I do some web stuff. I put out notices for people, but people do their own events. And that happened this year, too. Um, For example, School of Engineering did their own event and the Miller Center did their own event, um, to name a few. Um, Religious Studies ran their own event. So in the spring, I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of solution-oriented talks and events and then more artistic um, elements. There's going to be hopefully a play, mm. a dance, um, you know, nicely produced works being put out there. This fall we had poetry and we had um, people doing spoken word. And so we did have some of the arts represented, but mainly it was a lot of information and let's get everybody kind of who wants mm. to be, um, give people a chance to get on board with some of the big, big movements. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to have a really um, wonderful time in April looking at system-wide solutions, systemic problems. Um, the, the environmental justice movement has done a great job mm-hmm. of delineating the connections between economics, um, housing instability, migration, racism, and the environmental crisis that we're in and the climate crisis that we're in so all those people are totally involved with turn Mm -hmm. and i'm supporting all their work too so the center for sustainability the center for arts and humanities the initiative on environmental justice for the common good the department of environmental science studies and sciences um 
and child studies, all of those are big players working together mm-hmm. right now um, with, you know, with a lot of support mm-hmm. from the president, the provost, who were both involved in turn and were very generous with their time um, and supporting it, mm-hmm. you know, giving it moral support. So it's really been very nice to have kind of a grassroots project that seems to have lit up the discourse and um, got people more alarmed, which was one of our goals, but also got people working together and talking about it, which is probably the only way we're going to solve all this is much more connection to other human beings, much more face-to-face connection, and much more support across different groups that don't normally always work together or have to work Mm -hmm. together. You know, even generationally, like my generation, your generation, we have to work completely together on this. Mm-hmm. We can't be leaving it to you and you can't actually be leaving it just to us. Like we we all have to step up and literally link arms and figure this out. Um, and that that I think is what I hope people leave a turn week feeling mm-hmm. is that, oh, there are people working on this. There are incredible organizations already. There are movements there are global things and there's i can join any of those and be a part of it and i understand how serious it is and that it's a short window we have to do all this mm-hmm. it's not about like mm-hmm. 50 years from now there'll probably be enough trees you know it's not that kind of simple-minded thinking like i had as a as a high school student <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah there's a there's a couple uh, shorter questions i like to ask at the end of every episode and and we can kind of keep a, a similar lens but the first is uh, what piece of advice would you give to an incoming student at santa clara i would suggest to the incoming student at santa clara that they really do things that are important mm-hmm. that they go to talks that are above their head, that they go and to things they don't understand, and that they challenge themselves with clubs that really are working on issues they care about, mm-hmm. and then understand that their social life can flow out of mm-hmm. their commitments to inquiry, their commitments to learning, their commitments to caring, their commitments to a spiritual life, um, to their religious practices, Mm -hmm. which we hope to support in all different ways here, that their social life can be integrated Mm -hmm. with their academic life and their whole self. Um, And that in terms of climate crisis, they join one of the seven student clubs that have an environmental or sustainable or climate, or um, global action focus, Mm -hmm. or find a group in the neighboring area of, you know, the South Bay that's doing what they're interested in doing in the world, a civically minded group, a community-based group, um, political group, whatever they want, Mm -hmm. that that they learn how to do those things early on and invest their time so that I think that too often students worry about their social life mm-hmm. and they make a lot of choices to set up structures so that they will have a sort of a commercially yeah. good looking, you know, Instagram ready photo op social life. And they miss out on like kind of the core yeah. of what a Santa Clara education could be all about. Mm-hmm. 
And I understand people are coming to get jobs uh, with their degrees. I'm not against that thought. But I, I think if that's the only mm. pursuit people have, they're missing out on what the whole point of a liberal arts, Jesuit, social justice and sustainability oriented education mm. is. So my advice is to stick to your principles of what you care about, find those things on campus mm. or start them if you don't see them and lean into some causes mm. and then let your life kind of develop from there because you'll be around more like-minded people. Mm -hmm. You'll be around people that will keep you more deep as opposed to bringing out your shallowness, which we all have. Um, and I say, you know, study what you want to study. You do not have to do what where the job or the major that people say is some kind of guarantee. Mm -hmm. Because if you only do that, you might end up kind of regretting things when you're by like around 40. You might look back and go, oh, I never tried the thing I actually cared about. Mm -hmm. And I just hate to think that people might have that kind of regret after such an investment in such a great education as you get at Santa Clara. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really good good advice. So many people kind of put the social life first, and then uh, it doesn't flow out of their their interests and passions, but just out of you know wanting to be accepted. Right, basically away out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, fear based uh, you know group work for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and so if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? And so I, I always ask this question, but I'm I think I'm particularly curious after our conversation of you know someone's a someone's a lawyer, someone's a doctor, someone's a teacher. Uh, a counselor, they they don't have an explicitly sustainability or environmental focused uh, career, and that that takes a lot of their life. But what what role can normal everyday people play in this in this issue? You can find out about what is unsustainable in the industry that you're working in, and then you can join the movements that are working to improve that. So you can't fix everything. But you can find out what's unsustainable, for example, in uh, data farms. Um, if you're working in you know, a company that does that kind of work, you can find out what is unsustainable about theater, set design, or what is unsustainable about the way grocery stores are run. And you can then chip away um, at some of those problems, learn who is already doing it, join those groups. Mm -hmm. So you can look at your own industry, but I, I really encourage people to pick up an issue too that's not something that they're just living through, but something that is important. So choose a species and choose a group of people that you want to support. So do you want to support immigrants and refugees and also maybe give some money to the honeybee uh, foundations that are trying to save bees so that we can have fruit and vegetables and nuts in the future and not just have to eat corn, soy, and rice, um, which do not need pollinators, which is why big ag does not seem to care about <laughs> honeybees. Um, you know, so pick something within the human realm, the social realm, children, the elderly, homelessness, mm -hmm. and pick another issue that is not of the human realm. And I think with that combined with a mindfulness about the industry and the career that you're in and what it could do. Those are three prongs right there mm -hmm. that could keep you quite busy and I think would put you ahead of the curve when you look back at your life and say, did I do everything I could? I think people can also dedicate their volunteer time to sustainable, justice-oriented 
environmental causes. Mm -hmm. So those things that help lift people up economically, those things that help end racism and discrimination and all other isms, um, those kinds of things can really have a big impact ultimately on the environment. So, um, and certainly for social sustainability, they're, they're all critical. Mm -hmm. So, but I do kind of see that we're on this kind of Titanic moving towards this known negative outcome and all the problems we try to solve um, are happening on that ship but the ship itself is moving mm -hmm. in this direction we know that we're not going in the right direction so some people probably have to be more mindful of the big picture maybe more people need to be mindful of the big picture than are right now and other people need to be mindful of the individual and smaller um, networked concerns but everybody kind of has a role to play mm -hmm. in this so yeah. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Ideal Saturday is advanced yoga class at 8 a.m. to cross-train against some of the wear and tear of my modern dance career, which is Monday through Friday. Well, Sunday through Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and then time with family, hanging out at the house, um, my daughter, my husband, and seeing my parents and my sisters, reading getting my grading done and thinking about the environment. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. Thank you very much. It was so nice to talk to you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Go ahead and share this episode if you enjoyed it. But this week, why don't we all learn something new about the climate crisis and think of one way in our own life that we can be more sustainable. Have a great week. Have a great week.